0: As you're taking your seats, if you would, please take a copy of God's word and turn to Isaiah chapter 37, verses 8 through 38. We looked at the first seven verses as well as the previous chapter last week. If you've forgotten the context by the end of the first point, I trust you'll have uh, gotten the refresher you need. But suffice it to say, Israel is in a bad spot with a mean enemy bearing down on them, and they're looking to their God for help. So with that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Isaiah 37, verse eight. The Shaka returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Terhaka, king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Reziph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king? of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Henna and the king of Iva. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, who is, who he, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord." Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel, By your servants you have mocked the Lord and have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to the its remotest height, its most fruitful forests. I dug wells and drank waters, and dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? that I determined it long ago. I plan from days of old what, I, what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins with their inhabitants, shorn of strength, uh, are dismayed and confounded and become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you. This, this year you shall eat what's, what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield, or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake, and for the sake of my servant David." The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 people in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adremelech and Shazir, uh, Sharazir, his son, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, flower fades, word of our Lord stands forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider it this morning. Let's pray. O God, our great God, we come to you as a needy people, a needy people who need your word, who need your truth, who need your son our Savior, to dwell in us and speak to us. Do that, we pray, for your servants are listening. ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. My mom has one criterion for action movies. Sorry, mom, this is a good story. Also, truth be told, mom would have probably rather not watched action movies, but rom-coms like dramas, probably more her cup of tea, But she had two sons, so she had to watch a few action movies over the years. And if she was going to be subjected to them, she needed to know one thing, that the bad guy was going to get it in the end. Can I get an amen? Mom wanted justice. And truth be told, that's what most of us want too. We don't want evil to triumph. Now, we might debate about what is evil, what's not. We might debate who is more evil, more deserving of punishment in this fallen, twisted, confusing world. But most of us want the good guys to win, the bad guys to be punished. Amidst 31 verses and a lot of details in Isaiah 37, the bad guys get it in the end. And that is our comfort not that we are the good guys we aren't not based on our record we are sinners we are beggars our comfort is this god is holy god is just and god's passion for his own glory is greater than our need greater than anyone's arrogance because god is holy and just the arrogant will not win and the needy will not starve the needy who trust in christ when the lord is your shepherd you will have no want, no lack, no true need that God does not meet. I've got five points, so I got to get moving. Number one, we see history, a testimony to God's faithfulness in verses 8 through 13. There's history, prayer and prophecy in this passage. You might remember last week <clears throat> the Rabshaka, or the army commander, the field commander, of Assyria. he started barking threats at Judah and blasphemy at God. Well, Not at God, but God certainly heard it. And after Israel's king, Hezekiah, after he heard it, he realized his helplessness. He sought the Lord in prayer. And he also asked Isaiah, the prophet, to pray. And then God spoke through Isaiah, verses 6 and 7. We didn't read these this week. We read them last week. Isaiah said, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land that I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. God does exactly that. Verse 8, then the Rabshaka returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. The Rabshaka has kind of been abandoned. He talked a big game and then his own king tucked tail and ran away started fighting in Libna. If you want to know where that is, I can show you the right books. The bottom line is the Assyrian forces are divided because of what God calls a rumor in verse 9. And then in verse 10, the king, the Rabshakeh, well, they threaten Israel again. Why is that? Why why threaten Israel when Assyria is on the run, forces divided, because they don't want to show weakness. And so this next round of threats starting in verse 10, they're basically the same. One difference don't let God deceive you, verse 10 says instead of don't let Hezekiah deceive you, which was chapter 36 it's basically the same, and it makes you wonder if the great and powerful Oz, excuse me, the great and powerful Assyria isn't just some guy who 's all talk and no substance, doesn't it? Think of this for a moment. What do you see here? A boastful empire trying to boss around a weaker nation in the region. Isn't it good to know that God can stop them if he wants to? Boastful, mighty nations who are full of themselves. Now, that's not a guarantee that he always will. But it's good to know that he can. It should motivate us to pray to God for him to flex his muscles, to let his kingdom come, to let his will be done but the simplest takeaway is this god fulfilled his word at least in part so far god said the king would hear a rumor and run away and that's what happens and even though israel can't can't see all that yet we have the inside scoop the advantage of hindsight isn't this the way life sometimes works even before god's people can see God's salvation, he is already working things together for their good. God did what he said because God is faithful and God cannot lie. And after this history, this testimony to God's faithfulness, we also see this. Secondly, we see prayer, a plea for God's glory, a plea for God's glory in verses 14 to 20. Verse 14, Hezekiah spreads out the threatening letter as if to say, God, this is is what we're up against. God, incline your ear, he says in verse 17. It's a God-centered prayer, a desperate plea. Hezekiah knows who he's praying to. That always helps. Who does it help? It helps the one who prays. Verse 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. God made Israel, Judah, his chosen people who rebelled and are enduring discipline. God made Assyria and Sennacherib, the king, and the Rabshaka, whose scary title can't hide the fact that he's just a man. Just a man who, along with his king, has mocked the living God. Attempted to make God seem small. You can almost understand because Assyria's gods were small. They were wood and stone. They had no power. They were things that they made for themselves. The arrogant Assyrians and the pitiful people of God, they, they both needed to know that God alone was the Lord. Also known as Yahweh, the great I am. The one who had promised to be all that God's people would ever need him to be. All that they needed in Egypt, all that they needed in the wilderness for 40 years when their clothes miraculously didn't wear out, it's true, it's in the Bible, Deuteronomy 8.4. All that they needed when Sennacherib said he was hot stuff. God's passion for his own glory is greater than our need. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that what God's people need? When all around our soul gives way, don't we need the glorious God to show up and to show everyone his glory and his grace? We need to know and remember who God is so that we can be lifted out of our circumstances, out of ourselves. Makes me think of a hymn that we sing, out of my bondage, sorrow in night, Jesus I come, Jesus I come. Later it says, out of my wanting and into thy wealth, out of my sin and into thyself, Jesus, I come to thee. We need to get out of our own obsession about our circumstances so that we might see the the biggest problems in light of a big sovereign God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Kids, that's shorter catechism number four, the shorter catechism, even better than the children's catechism, not as long as the longer catechism. Finite Hezekiah knew that he needed the infinite God, especially in this hour. And his prayer is not, uh, uh, look at me. Don't I deserve better? No, it's God, glorify your name. This this ungodly bully has called you out, God. He says that none of the other little g-gods could do it. Why, Why should this God be any different? But I know you're different, Lord. You alone are truly God, so show him. Show all of us. My friends, that's a good pattern for prayer. God, glorify your name. You know, the problem is so often we're not concerned with God's glory, God's honor. We're hacked off because our honor has been offended, our reputation, our greatness. Can you believe he said that to me? How different would our prayers be if we asked how can God be glorified in this situation? How different would our prayers be if we asked that? Anyone need that reminder this morning. How can God be glorified in circumstances, situations I might not find ideal at this present moment? Now that said, I know that no one, um, I know no one who thinks their prayer life deserves an A+. But I know plenty of people who know that God loves them in spite of their imperfect prayers. So may the God who loves Pathetic people, pathetic prayers motivate us to plead with God for the sake of God's own glory. That's what Hezekiah did. And next we see this. Third, we see prophecy, a defense of God's glory. Prophecy, a defense of his glory, especially in verses 21 to 29. God speaks the answer to Hezekiah's prayer through Isaiah. Question, what's what's gonna happen to Sennacherib, this king who tried to make God look small, this king who is not God yet is exalting himself, this king who thinks he is so big, this king who is not larger than life, greater than self and lasting forever, this king who is not able to satisfy the longing for eternity that every man is born with, this king who is misleading God's people, keeping them from true happiness. Verse 22 says, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Might be a touch confusing what's going on here. Well, Sennacherib despised and mocked God. Now God's people mock him. She or the virgin daughter of Zion, the pure, Undefiled people whom God has protected from enemies all around them. She laughs at the mighty army in retreat. Then God asks in verse 23, whom have you mocked? Sennacherib and the Do you remember they had asked Israel, who are you trusting? Chapter 36 verse 5. Now God responds, who are you mocking? Isn't it the Holy One of Israel? the God whose presence terrified both Isaiah and Indiana Jones and anyone who knows who he really is. You mocked me, he says, because you thought you were the secret to your own success. In verse 24, Sennacherib forgot that there is a God who had given him all of his success for God's own purposes, namely to teach Israel a lesson and then some. God says in verse 26, speaking as if he's speaking to Sennacherib. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. Verse 28, I know you're sitting down, and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. <clears throat> Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes, especially arrogant kings. For them, he uses hooks in the nose, horses' bridles, whatever he wishes to humble their pride. The great truths of Scripture is that God will not be mocked. Isaiah. 42 verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Lord willing, that verse will be a preview of Easter Sunday. But God's passion for his own glory, it's greater than anyone's arrogance. The end of this story, the end of our story, is already written. Jesus wins, no one can change that. The arrogant will not win. They will not steal. His glory, and that is our comfort, friends. The meek inherit the earth, the poor in spirit have the kingdom of God. But just remember, God will not always right these wrongs on this side of heaven. You see, some sinful, wicked men and women will die with a fat bank account. And if they haven't trusted in Christ, well, that's all they have money that they can't access and problems that money can't solve. But the final chapter of their story is not the final chapter of the story, when God will come and right every wrong. And you see, along the way, God gives us just enough previews of that final day to keep us going. That's what Sennacherib's fall is all about. It's a preview of the final day, when God will vindicate his his glory, when our bad will finally turn out for good, when our good will never be taken away, when... We'll see that the best is here to stay. You see, sometimes God's words of vengeance, they're meant to stop us in our tracks, cause us to repent. Sometimes that's the case. But you see, this is a word about the bad guy to the godly guy, the God-dependent guy. This word is to remind us that God's glory is ultimately for our good, for our comfort. God will not be mocked. God's defense of God's glory is good news for his people. And so is the next thing we see. Fourthly, you see another prophecy, a defense and restoration of God's remnant. A defense and restoration of God's remnant in verses 30 to 35. Now it's a word for Hezekiah about his fate, <clears throat> about the fate of God's people and God's city. Like many of Isaiah's prophecies, he goes from present reality to future reality in this section, it's mostly on the short-term stuff, but it does reveal God's pattern of dealing with his people. Starting in verse 30, God says there'll be a sign. It's an agricultural sign for an agricultural people. If he was talking to us today, maybe he'd talk about the Dow going up, inflation finally going back down, who knows. But, but back then, he said for two years, my grain will be sufficient for you grain or barley or wheat or whatever. My power will be perfect in your weakness. And then in year three, your cup is going to overflow. What is he saying in all this? He's saying the siege of Jerusalem, it'll hinder the harvest for two years. And after this threat has passed, um, the war will still linger for God's people. It's going to affect things like, like, for example, the great harvest. One commentator points out how Zechariah 8.12 calls the vine the seed of peace. He explains it is a plant that requires peaceful conditions in which to yield its fruit. War doesn't just affect bodies and armies and things like that. It affects the land as well, the siege. It'll hinder your crops. But in year three, you're going to eat like kings because this war will finally have passed. History says that was true, by the way. The part about peace, for sure, I'm not really sure what they ate for dinner, but you get the point. And all this illustrates how God works with his people. Out of death comes life, out of adversity comes diamonds, out of hard labor comes good fruit. And what lies behind all that effort? Is it just a matter of willpower for God's people? Verse 32, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. And out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That same Isaiah 9 zeal that brings the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, that same zeal will stop Sennacherib. The threat will linger. The siege will linger. Yes, all that's true. But the city will not be breached, it says in verses 33 and 34. And then verse 35 for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. This does not mean that God's people will never lose a war, sorry. In fact, God's people suffer a devastating loss a generation later. Their continued sin would lead to continued discipline, escalated discipline. They would lose their home, their promised land, at least temporarily, but not this day because God said so. God said the arrogance of King Sennacherib had gone too far. God said the discipline of his people had gone far enough. Their king had humbled himself. He had realized his need, called out to God. God's passion for his own glory. It's greater than our need. God's passion for his own glory. I've said that phrase a few times. Let's clarify his passion for his own glory is not arrogance. Because God really is as great as he thinks he is. And it is not selfish. Because if God were not God, if God were not just, if he did not right every wrong, then our greatest needs would be unmet. Our world would be even more broken than it is with no hope of repair. God's passion for his own glory is good news for his people. Good news to a weary and broken world and it's reliable news because God's purpose will stand and he will do all that he pleases Isaiah 46 10 that leads us to our final point this morning history once again another testimony to God's faithfulness history another testimony to God's faithfulness in the final three verses if you're wondering wait isn't that the same as the title of first point no I did not run out of words or ideas we all know I Rarely run out of words, I simply run out of time, but as we we sang last week, what more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. You see, sometimes the best thing God can do for us is remind us of all the faithful things he's already said. God said in Isaiah 31 that Assyria would fall, but not by the sword of man, and then in verse 36 and the angel of the Lord went out and struck down a hundred and eighty-five thousand in the camp of the Assyrians and when people arose early in the morning behold these were all dead bodies God's power is made perfect in his people's weakness God's power shines forth and God's people cannot take any credit for any of the success they didn't do anything And by the way, if you're starting to feel bad for the Assyrians, well, you should research them more. Start with Isaiah 36, 12. They weren't nice people. And and after he loses 185,000 men, Sennacherib decides, I think it's time to go home. The rumor of verse 8 gave him second thoughts about continuing to invade, and this wallop of verse 36 convinces him. So verse 37, he goes home to Nineveh and almost seems too kind for this blasphemous bully of a king, doesn't it? Oh, but don't worry. God is faithful. And what had God said specifically about the king? If you look back at Isaiah 37, seven, verse seven, behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. We've seen that. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. It's possible this was years later. The question must have arisen, right? Can God be trusted? Will he follow through or is he full of empty threats like Sennacherib? Well, verse 38, he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God. Uh, Dremelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with his sword and after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. God did what he said. We open and close with a testimony to God's faithfulness. As Barry Webb says, the towering tyrant is dispatched in just three verses. All Hezekiah had to do like his fathers at the Red Sea was to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Bad guy gets it in the end. And more importantly, God's people know that someone is looking out for them. Even during their deserved discipline, God watches over his people. Even during trials, the exact reasons for which we may not know, even then God watches over his people. And when we trust in him during hardships like that, especially when we don't know the exact outcome and what it's gonna be, then God is glorified in us even in our weakness even in our weak faith in a strong savior then the kingdoms of the earth begin to know that he alone is the lord as it says back in verse 20. i saw a video a couple weeks ago on the one social media account that i still have it was a ukrainian family singing a tune that i recognized i know when it was filmed I also don't know a word of Ukrainian. I know some Hebrew and Greek. I know how to sing Jesus Loves Me in Spanish, but it wasn't Jesus Loves Me. And again, I don't know any Ukrainian. I can barely read music, but I know that these words belong to that tune. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, hold us fast like you promised to do. Hold us fast and hold our shaky faith. Strengthen it, make it stronger. Not because it has to be strong for, for you to save us, but make it strong for our sake, that we might know that you are the Lord and that you will watch over your precious people who are grateful for your care. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.